uh, essentially like all of the machine learning we're seeing is coming out of big tech companies. So Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, OpenAI, you name it. And what really differentiates these companies from the super majority of companies in the world is that they are massive. They have these ginormous data sets and huge reach. And so for them, black box modeling isn't a huge issue. One, because they have these like data sets with billions of examples. But the second thing is, if you eke out 0.1% improvement on your model's performance at Google, that could generate billions of dollars in you know, ad revenue. Welcome to the Future of Product podcast, where I, Max Matson, interview founders and product leaders at the most exciting AI startups to give you an exclusive glimpse into the workflows, philosophies, and product journeys that are shaping the current and future AI landscape. This week, I sit down with current co-founder at SoTie.ai and former Googler, William Baxt, to learn more about how he and his company are making AI models that make sense. With all that said, let's dive right in. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Future of Product. Today, I'm interviewing Will from Sotai.ai. It's a very interesting startup. Uh, Will, um, I'm going to ask you first to explain to me what Sotai does, like I'm a five-year-old, and then second to tell me what Sotai means. Yeah. I guess we can start with what Sotai means. Uh, It's an acronym for state-of-the-art interpretability. Um, It comes from some of the research I did in my work at Google on interpretable machine learning, which Mm -hmm. I know it's a mouthful. Um, and yeah, I mean, to explain what we do to a five-year-old, um, we have more data than we've ever had before. Mm. You know, we've got databases filled with data. We've got Excel spreadsheets filled with data, but it's it's pretty tough to capitalize on that data effectively. Mm. So on the one hand, we have handwritten rules, you know, things where you can explicitly define exactly how it's going to behave according to what you believe. Um, The problem with that is that even though it's transparent and makes sense, it's really hard to account for everything and to get really good results because you're doing it by hand. On the other side, we have what we call black box modeling. And, Mm. you know, I think the term kind of defines itself, but the idea is you give it a bunch of this data, it learns from the data and, you know, spits out predictions. And so it's really flexible and really powerful, you know, and has a lot of like predictive power but it's really hard to understand why it's doing what it's doing or how it's doing what it's doing. So you lose all of the transparency of handwritten rules. And so the goal of SOTI is to provide a modeling technique that we call calibrated modeling. And these models lie right in the middle. So they have the transparency and rule-based guarantees of handwritten rules and heuristics, but they have the flexibility and power of a black box model just without the black box. I see. Okay, gotcha. So you're kind of adding clarity to something that right now is a fully black box. Yeah, exactly. And I like to focus in on the term interpretability because mm-hmm. explainability is a big space in AI right now. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the acronym is like XAI. And I find explainability to be somewhat of an afterthought. It's like, hey, we have mm-hmm. these black box models. They're really powerful. We want to know why they're doing what they're doing. Interpretability, uh, at least the way I see it, is you know, a bottoms up approach. So rather than Mm -hmm. saying, hey, we have these models, let's try to explain what they're doing. It's, hey, let's make models that are just as powerful, but from the get go, we're constructed with the ability to understand what's going on in mind. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. 
makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned earlier um, that you had worked at Google previously. Would you mind telling me kind of, you know, some of the things that you were able to pick up from that experience and, and kind of how that led you into your journey with Sotai? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I worked uh, in Google AI on a team called Glassbox, which is a pun on the term black box. Um, hmm. And yeah, so was mostly researching interpretable machine learning systems. You know, we were releasing research papers with state-of-the-art results. Um, I like to call it calibrated modeling. Mm -hmm. um, and I can kind of get in a little bit more of why I call it that later. But what ended up happening was I spent a majority of my time working with product teams to help them launch these models in their products. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I found was that many product teams, even inside of Google, were using handwritten rules and heuristics. And you know, I think with this whole AI craze, we're looking to upgrade their systems, upgrade their products, mm -hmm. upgrade their decision-making workflows. But, right. they, you know, they weren't willing to just take the deep dive into black box modeling and use deep neural nets because not being able to understand why the model's making the predictions or how it's making them, uh, you know, it doesn't really enable you to trust the results. Mm -hmm. And if you can't trust the results, you're less likely to integrate it especially right. if you're a product manager or a product engineer and you're not a machine learning expert or a data scientist, mm -hmm. uh, it, it can be tough to take that leap of faith. And so they ended up reaching out to our team because they were like, hey, we want the power of black box modeling, but we want the you know transparency of uh, your team and like your product. Um, and so it was, you know, it was awesome. I got to launch a lot of models with some really cool teams. Uh, you know, like every time you use Google Maps, uh, it runs through a model that I launched with them. Um, oh, very cool. Have models that run in search, models that run in ads. I obviously can't go into the specifics. Right, right. One thing I found that was really frustrating was how inefficient that process was. So, mm. you know, the process of implementing these models with a product team was product team reaches out to us and we have like a, you know, icebreaker call mm. where... They tell us about their use case, what they want to do. We tell them about our models, tell them, you know, why it's worthwhile, which, you know, with this type of research, it, it's pretty difficult to someone who's not familiar with the space to explain how these models work and why it's beneficial and, you know, mm. why you get the power of black box without the black box. And so right. it creates this, you know, consistent, constant back and forth where we're trying to get information from them to effectively build these models and train these models. And they're trying to extract information from us to try and understand like how we're actually helping and how to properly understand it. And getting to a point where, you know, it was really cool to get these product teams uh, to feel that like wow factor where mm -hmm. we'd, they'd finally understand the benefit. You know, we'd finally understand their use case and we'd kind of converge on this. Hey, we know what we're doing. And the product teams would feel like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. We're finally able to upgrade our systems in a way that makes sense. And right. I think that was kind of the key phrase that I was looking for was, you know, when I studied AI in school, when I used it at Google, it was really rare for someone to use it and leave thinking that made sense. Mm. It was almost always, oh, I can see the power or I can see it being right. useful, but it was never, right. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so that ended up becoming like what I wanted to chase was, can we mm -hmm. produce AI systems that just make sense where right. you implement them, you use them, and you have this feeling of understanding, ease of use, transparency. And yeah, so I think like the main goal for me was, one, is it possible to remove that constant back and forth? Mm -hmm. Can we simplify the flow? Yeah. Um, 
almost to the point where could we just remove myself and my research team entirely from the like product implementation flow. Mm -hmm. When I joined the research team, my goal was to continue research, build out the tooling. I didn't expect it to be just building models and training them. That was more of like applied machine learning. Uh, and so I wanted to remove myself from that flow and give product teams, you know, the ability to just without us very easily configure, train and analyze these models um, gotcha. and get them to that wow factor as quickly as possible. And so like, yeah. that's kind of where Snowtie was born. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. You, uh, you use this term black box and, and I mean... I think everybody's heard it in relation to especially current AI, but would you mind talking a little bit more about kind of the costs that come with, you know, these black box models? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think first it's, it's probably worth uh, kind of further describing black boxes a little bit because mm -hmm. I think the term uh, can be taken as like, we have no idea what's going on, but mm -hmm. the reality is we know exactly how the models are structured. And you can dig into the structure and look at it and say, oh, well, like this node is connected to this other node. The problem is that it is the structure itself that makes them black boxes, right? You have this input come in and then every input feature goes to every node and gets combined in some way and then run through another transformation and combined in another way until eventually you get this prediction, but no particular node in the graph actually has any like defined meaning. The model knows mm. what it means, but that, that meaning is hidden, which is why in deep learning, you know, the layers in a model are called the hidden layers. Like that mm. name exists for a reason. It's because the meaning is hidden. You don't really know what's going on. It's just figuring out the best way to do it based on the data. Um, and so the example I really like to use to describe like the pitfalls of black box modeling is, you know, if we consider a real estate agent who, you know, they want to more effectively price their clients' homes when they put them on the market. Mm -hmm. And so they train this black box model on historical data of like all the homes they've priced and, you know, changes in the price and what the final sale price was. Mm -hmm. And they put this new house in and they get some prediction, let's say, you know, a million dollars. And then they go back and they realize, oops, like I mistyped the square footage. It's, you know, it's 1500 square feet, but I put in a thousand square feet. So let me bump that up to 1500. And then the model produces a prediction of 800,000. And in that moment, you're like, huh, increasing the size without changing anything else should only really increase the price. You know, mm -hmm. of course, market conditions change and other features will impact the price. But if nothing else is changing, larger properties should be more expensive. That's kind of a fundamental rule of real estate. Okay. And it's in that moment where now a data scientist or a real estate agent or anyone using this model is going to start questioning the results. And they're going to start questioning, well, what happens if we change any feature, especially the features we think are impactful? And it's in that moment where you just lose trust in the model and you're going to go back to what you were doing. And so I think, I, that's, I think that's the primary pitfall of black box modeling is that there's nothing really you can do about that. The only mm -hmm. solution is gather significantly more data and then just hope that the model learns what you want it to learn. Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. It, from an industry perspective, what is your kind of take on black box modeling as kind of a standard in the industry? Do you think that it's something that you know Sotai is, is hoping to disrupt? And, and if so, for like product teams, how do you see that kind of bearing out? 
Yeah. Um, I, I think I have a pretty hot take on this, honestly. So take it oh, with yeah, a yeah. Of salt. But right now, uh, essentially, like all of the machine learning we're seeing is coming out of big tech companies. Mm-hmm. So Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, OpenAI, you name it. Mm-hmm. And what really differentiates these companies from the super majority of companies in the world is that they are massive. Right. They have these ginormous data sets and huge reach. Mm-hmm. And so for them, black box modeling isn't a huge issue. One, because they have these like data sets with billions of examples. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, if you eke out 0.1% improvement on your model's performance at Google, that could generate billions of dollars in you know ad revenue. Mm. And so for them, it makes sense to use these black box models even at the cost of transparency because they're generating more money and that's what they want. Mm-hmm. The problem is for the super majority of companies, small companies, mid-sized companies, even large companies where they're, they don't have as much data or they don't have the resources to focus these big teams on eking out that little bit of performance, the lack of transparency often just prevents the use of AI completely. Mm. And... As a result, you now just have these companies that are somewhat dependent on big tech companies releasing models that they can use and having no real control over, you know, the direction of their product. It's tough to fine tune these to their data, you know, make sure that the original training data was close to what they wanted. And so I think one thing that's really cool about the models that I was researching and kind of the models that power our platform is that, yeah, they work really well with really large data sets, but they also work really well with really small data sets. So even if you only have a thousand or 10,000 examples, you can still find value using these models, especially because you're not just looking for predictions. You're looking for like an iterative cycle where you use the model to better understand the data, gather mm-hmm. insight and use that insight to you know, have actionable uh, you know, results, things you can actually like change your procedures, change how you interact with your customers, figure out which features are the most important. Um, and so I think it's it's I think one of our main goals is to revolutionize the way that product teams and you know any team in general is making decisions. Gotcha, that's super interesting. Um, it's almost like kind of democratizing uh, the AI, right? Uh, what would you say is kind of like the threshold in terms of size for a company where something like Sotai would would become useful? Because I've I've heard a lot of people with objections saying, you know, we don't have enough data. Um, I don't know when we'll have enough data. When would you say that 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 line is kind of crossed? Um, I mean, I don't really think there's a line. Um, I mean, if I want to give a line, it's like, yeah, if you only have like 10 data points, Mm -hmm. you just use handwritten rules. Right. Um, But, you know, like, let's say you're an e-commerce company. Mm -hmm. If you've made a thousand sales, you could still benefit from using these models. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, it makes a ton of sense to do it then, right? So um, question, you, uh, you're you serving, you know, kind of teams, it sounds like, of all different sizes, potentially. Who is kind of the person that you're hoping to kind of get this tech into their hands? That, you know, a, a product lead, a, a head of data, who, who is that person? Yeah, I mean, I think right now the goal is the early data scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a data science PhD you know, statistics PhD could still benefit greatly from using the tool because it can mm-hmm. provide a lot of the machine learning and analysis tooling that they would have to do by hand. But I think a lot of the real benefit is going to come from data scientists who 
are either just getting started or have been in the field for a few years and you know they're using scikit-learn and mm. maybe struggling to really eke out value there or they're using black box models and they don't really know what's going on and it's tough to improve mm -hmm. you know and so we want to provide a way for these data scientists to capitalize on their knowledge capitalize on their domain expertise um, you know and create an iterative flow where they can actually eke out performance over time um, you know, and help drive key decisions, drive product changes, drive product integrations. Mm -hmm. um, but I think ultimately our end goal is, um, you know, I think it's kind of in line right now with the whole GPT LLM craze, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, I envision a future in which anyone with data should be able to capitalize on it in a way that makes sense. And with, with GPT and LLMs, it, it doesn't necessarily really make sense to people, but they're finding value. And anyone mm -hmm. now can go to chat GPT and type something in and be like, wow, this is really cool. I want that same wow factor for I have an Excel spreadsheet. I don't know what to do with it. I want them to come to our platform and without any experience, find value from that in a way that was like previously not possible. I love that. That's uh that's one of my favorite things about Sota is that you guys really are making machine learning a lot more accessible, right? Um, and I, I think that that's going to be one of the major trends, right? It's it's like any technology. It starts out, you know, very much in the hands of people who, you know, are deep in the tech and are able to, to manipulate it directly. And then obviously it always works out and expands into kind of general populace. Um, so that being said, how do you see AI kind of evolving over the next, you know, I'll let you pick the the, the time period um, and really becoming more accessible. Yeah, I mean, I think with respect to our company, our goal is to make it accessible as soon as possible. Mm. You know, I could say four weeks, I could say you know, a couple months. Yeah. Um, but I think the goal is just move as quickly as possible and make it you know as accessible as possible as soon as we can. Um, but you know, if we look at you know, the acronym for our name, state of the art mm -hmm. interpretability, there's nothing in there that's necessarily specific to tabular data or mm -hmm. calibrated models. So I think the end goal is eventually, can we apply the techniques that we've figured out for tabular data to natural language processing, to computer vision, to reinforcement learning, to generative mm -hmm. modeling? You know, and I think one of the cool things about this you know, technique is that it creates an iterative dev flow where you can iteratively improve the model without necessarily needing more data, just by understanding the data, understanding the model. I'd love to be able to apply those techniques to, you know, natural language processing in particular. Um, you know, we're seeing a huge explosion with LLMs and GPT. And, you know, I think it's a little scary that they can lie. Mm -hmm. um, as powerful as they are and as useful as they are, I think until we have a sense of why they're doing what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know, if you ask a person, hey, you did this, why did you do this? Yeah, they could still lie to you. But for the most part, they're going to give you some insight into their mind. And I feel like mm -hmm. the reason that that's valuable is that we can relate. It's like, oh, I'm a human. You're a human. You kind of probably think similarly. Mm -hmm. I can extrapolate and, you know, maybe tell that you're lying or not. Or you, maybe you have tells. But with right. GPT, it's like, there is no human interaction layer there. And so I feel mm -hmm. like we really need some level of transparency. And yeah. so I guess my hope is that in the next year or two, we're mm -hmm. going to have any company with data scientists, product managers, product engineers able to come to our platform, upload their data and find value. You know, and I think 
longer term horizon, if we look closer to like 2030, five, six, seven years out, I think the goal is to be able to apply these techniques to any aspect of AI such that, you know, anyone can use AI in a way where they leave feeling like that made sense. And, mm. you know, I think if we can achieve that goal, that we'll reach a point where the super majority of internal processes, decision-making, it's all going to be data-driven. Mm. And I think right now we say a lot of things are data-driven, but I think the analysis is lacking. And so I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to that future where if you want to make a decision, you can just go to any model and say, hey, mm. here's my data. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. Give me, you know, plan of action and why, and right. to feel confident in those results and actually act on them. Absolutely. You know, one thing I've been kind of finding a theme with a lot of my guests is uh, kind of changes in the data landscape today, right? Mm -hmm. So I think um, a lot of companies, especially larger companies, are very siloed off. Um, I mean, it's obviously a big problem, uh, departmental silos of data. Uh, but what I'm kind of seeing is that, you know, from analytics companies to data warehouses, everything is kind of getting pushed together, right? So you've got this one big data lake, and then every department is just kind of looking at it from a different angle. Um, with kind of those shifts in the landscape around data, how do you see that kind of factoring into, you know, the mission of SOTI as you guys move forward? Yeah, I mean, what's really cool about a lot of aspects of machine learning is that when you increase the feature space, you can often get better results. I don't know this. I really like the saying, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes mm. better than a master of one. Mm. And I like that because it, I think the concept is that even if you're not a master of one thing, mm -hmm. having knowledge of a breadth of things can actually make you better in each thing by bringing different perspectives and different knowledge. And I feel like the same is true of machine learning. So, you know, let's say you're a sales team and you've got all this sales data from your CRM. Mm -hmm. So you download a CSV file from Salesforce and you upload it to SOTI and, you know, we help you build a model to do lead scoring. Mm -hmm. Great. But oftentimes a lot of that is going to require knowledge of your marketing, right? And so now if you have the marketing data fed in as well, you're going to get a better picture of what's going on. And mm -hmm. hey, maybe we've got some new products in line. And if we have some information about that, we might be able to better predict sales based on products that are like on a wait list and, you know, stuff right. like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. So I want to get a little bit more into your background. So okay. you are an engineer yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously a product thinker, a founder. What? inspired you specifically to strike out on your own? I mean, obviously Google is a, is a cushy place to be. Yeah. Um, I guess I can give some more backstory. So prior to Google, uh, I grew up in New York. Um, and my, my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, and you know, my mom left her role to kind of raise us, but then got into real estate. And as a real estate agent was you know, kind of like her own entrepreneur running her own business. You know, and then if we look out into my extended family, they're all kind of running their own businesses. So I think growing up, uh, a lot of it was just being around entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. founders, people kind of running their own thing. Um, and then, of course, I got out to Stanford for my undergrad. And, you know, the ecosystem there is very much so like start your own company. Everyone's yeah. here, you know, strike it big. Um, but... I don't know. I never really, while I was there, landed on the right idea or something that I was passionate about. 
it's funny to look back on some of the ideas I had now seeing them as like very successful companies. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, you know, do you regret not doing that? And the answer is no, because at the time, obviously, when I came up with the idea, I thought it could be successful, but mm -hmm. didn't really, I didn't resonate with it. You know, I didn't, right. it didn't really feel like the right fit. Um, my co-founder Linus, actually, I met freshman year of college and mm -hmm. I think like after our first meeting, I decided, okay, I'm going to start a company with this guy one day. Mm. And I was pitching him ideas for, I think it was like eight or nine years before I finally hit the mark and got him to join. And um, yeah, I just at the time wasn't ready to do it and mm. you know wanted to get into the AI space more. Um, I was doing a master's in AI and you know, I think striking on our earlier point of these big tech companies really being at the forefront of that figured, hey, it'd be a really good idea to just go to a big tech company and work on an AI team to really get like a firsthand perspective of where the space is going, where it's heading and what we can do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was where my decision to go to Google came from was not out of the like cushy, you know, mm -hmm. lifestyle or work-life balance, but out of the, I want to be at the forefront of AI and this is where I kind of feel like it is. Uh, but then the problem was I got really bored. Mm. Uh, you know, when you're a small cog in a giant machine, the, yeah, you can have a lot of impact, but mm. you don't feel it the same way. You know, like I had teammates who were, you know, building models that would ultimately generate, you know, a billion dollars in revenue, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like that. Right. You don't feel like, oh, I just did this crazy thing. And for some people, they see that number and it's good enough, but for me, you know, I, I wanted more of that, that drive and ambition. And, uh, you know, I also felt like it wasn't too much of a meritocracy. So mm. one thing I found was that like Google was very much so becoming like, you know, flatter and flatter where there wasn't really room for growth. So I ended up getting promoted. And then after my promotion, I thought, Hey, I'm going to, you know, work my butt off. I'm going to get, mm. you know, try to shoot for like an exceeds expectations rating. Mm. And went up for that rating. And the response I got was, you're exceeding your peers at your new level. But you just got promoted. And we want to see you do that for longer. So your rating is meets expectations. <laughs> and yeah, I quit like two weeks later, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or at least gave my notice. Because mm. I was just like, you know, if I if working harder doesn't help me in any way, and there's totally. no incentive to work harder, then I'm mm -hmm. just going to do the bare minimum to get the rating that I should get at the time. And that's like, that's really not a good feeling. Um, and so right. I think that along with just growing up around entrepreneurs made me feel like, Hey, if I can just, you know, iterate on an idea in a free space mm -hmm. outside of Google, I'll probably be able to land on something I'm excited about. And I don't know, find that drive, find that ambition. Um, you know, I've been looking for a sense of accomplishment and now I feel like I'm getting that every day in my work. Awesome. Like in the founder lifestyle, you know, it has its pros and its cons. Right. right. Um, yeah, I'd say I definitely, I'm loving it. It's a, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think a lot of people look at the founder lifestyle and think you do a couple hours of work here and there and mm -hmm. you, know, you strike it lucky or you capitalize on your network. But you know, when you meet a lot of really successful founders, the common denominator is the grind yep, and devotion and commitment and mm -hmm. ambition. And 
I'm always impressed when I see the most successful founders, just how hardworking they are. And they're working yeah. all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah the, totally. To the point where they're like, I'm going to use Instacart to get my groceries because that hour I would spend shopping would be better spent working. It's not because right. they want to be lazy. You know? Totally. It's yeah, big, you go full circle. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. I, um, our founder over at Player Zero is also technical, uh, heavy, you know, hands in the product, uh, building all the time. I feel like, you know, you type of uh, founders are have like a really interesting kind of balance to strike, right? Because not only are you guiding the product, if responsible for making sales, responsible for building GTM, you also have to make sure that, you know, it works. Um, so that being said, do you have any advice for other technical founders, people who, you know, potentially want to use their skills to become founders? Yeah. Um, I think my number one piece of advice would be don't do it alone if you don't have mm. to. Um, you know, I think for non-technical founders, it's actually easier to do it alone because mm. you can hire, you know, a consultancy to build things out and get things started while you do all the non-engineering stuff. And then you build out an engineering team. Um, and at the end of the day, the CEO of the company is often doing a lot of things alone anyway, but building something alone is tough mm -hmm. and not having someone to bounce ideas off of is tough to have someone review your code, to challenge the way you're thinking of doing something to make sure that you're doing things in a way that makes sense to get a different perspective, I think is extremely important and valuable. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need a co-founder. You know, it could just be like an early lead engineer. You know, if you have some early funding or you can go in your pocket and pay a you know consultant to work with you. But, um, you know, I think getting started alone seems really easy and you start iterating on stuff. But I think yeah. having someone to bounce ideas off of is invaluable. So if you have that opportunity, I would take it. Absolutely. Well, would you mind telling me just a little bit more about okay, how old are you guys, by the way? Yeah, uh, I think we're both 27. 27. Uh, what was that process like when you started bringing additional people onto the team? I mean, that's a really exciting time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we actually, we brought on our first employee, I think, almost exactly to the day of one year after we founded the company. Okay. And... It was definitely an interesting experience, um, mm. mostly because we had been working just the two of us for so long mm. that, you know, we kind of were like in our own world. And so mm. when we brought someone on board, it made us take a step back and reevaluate a lot of our internal processes. Right. And I think one of the most beneficial things of, of bringing uh, our first employee on board was that he started just asking really good questions from the get go. Mm while he was onboarding, after he was done onboarding, he wasn't afraid to say, why are you doing this? I don't understand. And a lot of times it was, oh, well, actually, we just don't have a really good reason for doing that. We just started doing it and it was what we were doing and it was moving quickly. And right. hey, maybe you're right. Maybe we should think about this or maybe do this differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was really good to get that other perspective, especially because Linus and I are both ex-Google. So mm -hmm. coming from very similar tech stacks, very similar methodologies. So it's really nice to have someone come in and say, hey, like maybe we shouldn't do it this way because we're not at Google and we don't have all the support that they had for these things. Totally. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. So I know that, you know, process can be a real battle early on. Um, I know you guys are a small team. 
what have you know what were the difficulties with actually you know implementing process do you feel like you're there at this point where you've got one that you like what does that look like yeah um have you ever heard the saying that you'll, you'll never like your own product <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah so yep. I think that applies to pretty much everything. Um, mm. I think Linus and I have slightly different methodologies on this. Mm. Uh, I think Linus is very much more so on the side of like what we have works well enough. Let's work with it. And right. I think I'm very much so on the side of let's try to get like the best thing possible. Mm. And I think what's great about us being on opposite sides is that even though sometimes that causes a little bit of like heated discussion or, you know, butting heads on certain things, it ends up having us meet in the middle where sometimes where I think we should do something, it actually turns out maybe we shouldn't, we should stick with what we have and mm. vice versa. And I think ends up creating like a pretty good direction. But um, have you heard of like agile scrum frameworks? Yeah. 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 So, you know, I think a lot of people use agile frameworks for engineering, but mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest benefits of uh, agile frameworks is that you can use them for internal processes as well. Mm. So, you know, at the end of each sprint, we have, you know, what we call our retrospective, where, you know, we go over and say, hey, what should we stop doing? What should we keep doing? And what should we start doing? And that's not just limited to engineering stuff. So it could be, mm -hmm. hey, like, there's this tool that we're using. And, you know, it's fine for now, but I don't like it for XYZ reason, maybe we should look into another tool. And then that kind of sends me off into like a, you know, hour long rabbit hole of looking up different tools, doing some research, and hopefully improving the process. And so, mm -hmm. I think it all boils down to that iterative improvement. Um, same way for machine learning that we're trying to do where you can iteratively improve the models. You know, we want to iteratively improve our engineering flow, iteratively improve our product and iteratively improve like all of our internal procedures. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm actually right now in the process of testing out some new tools because we use Jira and I think, I think all four other people on the team right now are like mm -hmm. Jira's okay, it's good yeah. enough. And right. I think I'm like, I really don't like it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so it's easy enough for me on my own to go spend 30 minutes playing around with some new tools, come up with a proposal and pitch it to the team. And if the answer is, hey, actually, like, I don't think it's worth the hassle of making the switch, then we just table the discussion. And if the answer is, hey, let's make the switch, then it was easy enough. I went and did it, you know, in my free time. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think the end goal is, We'll never be 100% happy with where we are now. And I think that's what makes a great startup team is that we're always iteratively improving everything. I love that. Treating your processes like the product, right? Exactly. Crucial. So both you and your co-founder, Linus, are both ex-Google engineers, right? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about what it looks like wearing all those different hats as a founder? Um, I know that your team is primarily, if not all, engineers. Uh, yeah, it's all engineers right now. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so very heavy product slant. How do you guys approach, you know, kind of going to market and, and doing the more squishy pieces of, of the role? Yeah, I mean, when Linus and I first started the company, uh, I think the pretext and he was very clear about that being my role. Um, mm. I think early on, people asked us, hey, how did you decide, you know, you're both engineers, who was going to be right. CEO and who was going to be CTO? Mm -hmm. And the answer was, it was decided for us by who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a much more like active, social, mm -hmm. righty, you know, like my background from high school is a lot of, you know, I learned how to write from 
you know, English PhDs mm -hmm. and have spent a lot of time writing and a lot of time doing kind of all the squishy stuff. Yeah. Um, and so it was a really easy decision because, you know, Linus is just an incredibly talented engineer who doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily love all of that squishy stuff. And so it very early on created a really nice separation where when the squishy stuff came up, you know, I took it on. Um, mm. But, you know, I think we're going to hit a point pretty soon where I'm not going to be able to handle all of that stuff alone. And so we'll probably right. bring, you know, someone on board to kind of help manage some some of the more squishy stuff, as you as you said. Mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, so kind of, you know, changing gears slightly. Um, I know that I sent you a couple of questions before this, but I just want to get your honest opinion on where do you think that AI is going to take us? And, and this is as broad or as narrow as you want to interpret it um, in the next 10 years. Yeah. No, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I really like to think of it in the concept of uh, like exponential functions. Mm. And, you know, when you look at an exponential function as a graph, there's a huge flat region. Mm. And then all of a sudden it skyrockets. Right. And we have no idea where on that graph we are. Mm. And so, you know, when I look 10 years out in the context of all this recent LLM AGI stuff, mm -hmm. I'm feeling a lot closer to that, you know, spike. Yeah. And so I think it just totally depends on how close we are. Mm. Um, you know, I think if we're really close 10 years from now, we're going to see a world where, you know, you pretty much no one has to really do anything technical. Mm -hmm. We're all going to shift to being creative thinkers mm -hmm. and utilizing, you know, automation tools and artificial intelligence to do all of the technical stuff. Right. You no. Know, why bother learning computer science when you could learn how to think like a computer scientist and then just use auto GPT to go build your product for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then I think if we want to get really, really crazy, in the context of like nanotechnology, if we have mm. nanotechnology powered by AI, I think mm. we're going to see like a whole new landscape of how humans live and how we do things. That's exciting. I, um, so I actually got a book here. I don't know if you've heard of this one, super intelligence, Nick Bostrom. I, I haven't. Um, Should I give it a read? Well, yeah, I would recommend it. It is okay. depressing. I won't lie. <laughs> um, his, his take is, you know, and I, I'm very interested to just kind of hear your opinions on it with how you talk about like this exponential curve is that, you know, as soon as we hit that point, essentially we've hit this point of no return. And it seems like you have a pretty uh, balanced view of kind of like the role of, of AI. So I'd just love to hear your opinion on artificial general intelligence, obviously being this huge, you know, yeah. unknown. Um, yeah. Do you have any opinions? Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. I just had a conversation the other night at dinner with someone where I realized afterwards I was probably scaring him a little bit with <laughs> my thoughts. <laughs> um, but the idea was that, like, we're going to become cats to, mm. like, the human AI. Mm. Uh, you know, like, we build out these, you know, you see, like, cat people who have these, like, installations on their walls and outdoor jungle mm -hmm. gyms and, like, building all this stuff for their cats to have this, like, nice, cushy life. Right. And, you know, I feel like there's a chance we become those cats for AGI where, you know, you can imagine a world where these robots have like human pets mm -hmm. and, you know, they're like, oh, look, my human is writing a song. Oh, how cute. 
or oh he's writing a book so cute or oh look at him coding away so cute i'm gonna go build this interdimensional travel system so he can go have a playpen on this other dimension you know so yeah it's it's pretty scary to think like that um Mm. and i think you can take that positively or negatively you can look at it as you know, all the problems of society are going to disappear and we're going to become essentially animals with the freedom to do whatever we want and the resources to do whatever we want. Or you can look at it as, you know, essentially some form of domestication and enslavement. Um, right. My hope is that it feels more like the former. Yeah, than the <laughs> totally. <laughs> we're all hoping, right? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I do feel like, you know, we, we've reached this and you're absolutely spot on this, this point where I don't know if it's the inflection point, right? But it's certainly we've reached a point where AI has become useful, right? And that tends to be the first step. Yeah. I mean, what's so scary to me and also really cool is mm. that when I was in college, I was building transformers and training mm. them. I was training generative models. Mm. And, you know, that was what, 2018, 2019, when I graduated, not but, you know, four or five years ago. And at the time I was like, this is cool but it's got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And now we're five years later and it's doing way better than I thought it would. Yeah. And that's the part where I feel like we're closer to that inflection point where even just the jump from GPT 3.5 to GPT four mm-hmm. is massive. Yeah. So then that, you know, the jump from GPT four to five to six mm-hmm. to, you know, it's, yeah. it's really hard to tell where we're going to be. And right. You know, in the concept of self-improvement, you know, when we start implementing self-improvement and agents and the ability to kind of build their own things, we have no idea where it's going to go. You know, it could be that we go to sleep one night and the next morning our entire world is turned upside down because some AGI created some brand new thing that lets us do something we didn't even think was possible, like Mm -hmm. traveling to Mars instantly. Like, and we just don't know. And it's easy to say, no, we're not going to get there, but... The reality is there's very little we actually know definitively about the universe and how things work. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is for an exponentially growing system to absolutely blow our minds. Um, There's an article I read a long time ago about this. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting the name exactly, but it talks about like the shock factor. If you could go Mm -hmm. back in time and bring someone to the present that essentially like how long would you have to go back for the shock to kill them? And The idea was, you know, you go back to like pre-industrial revolution, someone from like mid, mid, late 1700s, and you bring them to the present and they see cars and airplanes and smartphones and skyscrapers, and they'd probably die from shock. Right. But then you send that person back in time with the time machine and they think, oh, okay, great. I'm going to now go back in time equal amount. I'm going to go back, you know, to the 1400s and bring someone to the 1700s. And that person won't die of shock because the change isn't large enough. They'd have to go back to like 10,000 BC to get the same effect. When you look at that rate of change, you're like, oh, okay, so we went from somewhere around 10,000 years of change to 300 years of change to, you know, now if you went back to probably the early 1900s and showed people GPT or you showed Alan Turing GPT, it'd blow their minds. You know, and so when you look at it in that sense, it becomes, I think, a lot more clear that what we think is going to happen is likely very different, different from what's actually going to happen. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. I, um, 
I, I like your your mix of optimism and, and realism there. It uh, <laughs> I would have to agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely we're definitely living in a scary world, but mm -hmm. I don't know. After playing around with GPT and playing around with a lot of these AI systems and kind of being in that world, mm -hmm. I think there's too much value to only have a pessimist pessimistic view. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have to hold some sense of optimism because there's there's just too much value not to be like really excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will ask you one last question. And uh, if it can't make the podcast, that's okay. But just for my own interest. So you, you were inside Google um, working on AI. Do you remember that story of that guy that uh, came out and said he believed I think it was, I don't remember which model, <laughs> that he believed it was sentient. I wish so badly Linus was able to make it today. That guy was on his team. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I mean, I think it just depends on how you define sentience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like if it's, it's the classic Turing test where, you know, if you put mm -hmm. the robot and a human behind a wall or through a chat interface, at a certain point, if it's providing answers that are very human in nature, mm. it's going to be really hard not to feel like it's sentient. Right. And yeah, we can say like, it's this system and it's not a brain and it's not a human, but mm -hmm. what defines human consciousness? What defines, you know, actual sentience? We don't know it for, it very well could be in some way sentient. And it's really hard to like guarantee that. Um, although I played around with Bard and definitely did not think mm -hmm. it was sentient. So I, in, in that <laughs> sense, totally disagree, <laughs> but playing around with GPT and the recent stuff, I'm starting to feel a little bit more like, huh, there's something here and, and who knows what's going to happen. Very interesting. Thank you. I, it's been burning in the back of my head for a while <laughs> since I saw, saw those articles. Um, but, uh, Will, if you've got anything, you know, that you want to leave uh, the listeners with, I'm happy to kind of have just an open little bit if you wanna. Yeah, I mean, if you have data and you don't know what to do with it and you're interested in figuring out what to do with it, uh, go read our blog. It's on our website, sotai.ai. Reach out to me, feel free to email me. My email is will at sotai.ai. And yeah, I would just love to help you figure out how to use your data effectively. Perfect. You heard him guys, sotai.ai, check him out. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Feature of Product Podcast, and a special thanks to my amazing guest, Will. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about what I do over at Player Zero, you can find us at playerzero.ai. If you're looking to go even deeper on the subjects we talked about in the pod, subscribe to Feature of Product on Substack, and be sure not to miss this Thursday's newsletter, which I break down the biggest takeaways from my conversation with Will, give you some AI tools, and get started with the same day, and talk about the biggest stories of the week. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you there.